Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Janelli, and I was like a god once. I'm Andrew Weissel. I'm just tired. I'm Carrie Thomas. Hmm. There's no witty intro for this one. I'm sorry. All right, let's just get going. So today we have our retrospective on Return to Dominaria. We want to start by talking about the continuity errors and retcons of Dominaria. So we're going to have nice things to say too, but I think it's important that we address what the problems were with the story. It was the freshman outing on a new paradigm, and not everything went well, I think is the nice way to put it. So the first thing I want to talk about is I see a lot of confusion about what is a continuity error versus what's a retcon, what might be artistic license. When we talk about continuity errors, we're talking specifically about things that are definitely a mistake from the writing standpoint, because a lot of people seem to get confused because characters can just be wrong. Like the the words that come out of a character's mouth do not have to be the truth. And in a set like Dominaria, where you've got someone like Belzenlock twisting history and characters referencing history they weren't around for, history is frequently wrong. So we have to be clear that some of these are might just be characters being wrong versus a continuity error. Yeah, there's also a very difficult area that you have to tread there. What constitutes that is kind of the distance from the originating mistake or the originating thing that is being contradicted. Zendikar, for instance, they did in the original Zendikar block, Anawan spouts out all this stuff that aligns perfectly with the Zendikar card set and the Zendikar lore at the time. But once they had to institute some retcons for battle for Zendikar, that stuff was made into Anawan was wrong when he was <laughs> saying this because he was talking about in-world myths. And that's some of what we might encounter in Dominaria. Well, we did encounter it. There are a few things from Time Spiral that were retconned through this method that we should uh, mention what a retcon is, I guess. So when people talk about retcons, there are really two potential things they might be talking about. The one that's always a hot-button topic is changing established lore to fit the modern narrative, or just changing established lore. The other kind of retcon by technical definition, but that people often conflate or confuse, is adding history. So Dominaria has a lot of blank spots, and technically, going back and revealing that something happened back in the day that we didn't know about before is still a retcon, but it's not a retcon in the sense of changing established lore, especially if it fits in. And so with Dominaria, we hit basically all of these. We hit things that are probably actual continuity errors. We hit characters are probably just wrong. We hit changing history, and we hit adding history. Yeah, it's a very blurred line, once again, whether... It's adding history or changing history depends a lot on how much of the history a certain fan knows, because they might just not be aware of an obscure source that they were actually referencing that is not contradicting anything new. It's just like redredging that back up. But at the same time, if we're just talking about adding history, that's what 
a lot of the sets for the past decade have been built on is minor revisions to things that have came to before them to expand upon it without contradicting anything, but it's just adding more backstory. And sometimes they contradict. Yes, uh, frequently. (laughs) (laughs) The other important thing to note about retcons is that retcons aren't always bad. Right. A lot of people look at retcons and say, oh, you should never retcon things. Sometimes it depends on the story you're telling now and depending on how important the things you're changing were then and how they apply now. Retcons can be fine, especially if they make a better story. It sucks for the people who cherish that part of the story from the olden days, but like being somebody who lived through um, Zendikar 1.0 and enjoyed digging into that lore and then having it having most of it upturned frankly in battle for zendikar that's just something you gotta deal with is that a lot of the stories they retold in battle for zendikar with more depth and a lot more clarity than had ever been expanded on in like a planeswalker's guide to zendikar when it was originally published sorry zendikar is kind of my baseline for retcon since it's just like very very clear division between what happens and they did every kind of retcon down to editing out (laughs) vampires i will never let this go (laughs) editing out vampires from the lithomancer without telling anyone to the point where i felt like i was legitimately crazy because i'm like wait a second vampires were there yeah you should never feel like you're being gaslit when you're reading magic story that's a pretty clear line to not cross yeah, the, the, the change in the history of the Hedrons is probably the biggest thing. And so this is this is an example where the, the retcons they ended up doing to change the backstory of the Hedrons and the Royal and the, the Eldrazi and Zendikar's ancient cultures, I think resulted in a better and tighter story in Battle for Zendikar. Oh, much, yeah. Yeah. Part of the issue is that when those things were created, they were done so very loosely without much intent this is this is my big criticism of of brady's era of running creative is that some things kind of existed for a nebulous purpose that he never did anything with and kind of shoehorn things into awkward positions i think part of the appeal is that it can be retroactively fit like if we ever go back to um, say Exelon and we wanted to explore the Bat God, we could insert him into previous events that we know have happened on the plane, but just show his influence and it's just adding that history. It's not exactly contradicting. Right. But in one clear Dominaria reference, we understood during the Time Spiral trilogy that Tafiri was very, very distraught over permanently losing Zalfir. It was absolutely lost when Jessica sealed it. And you can take that now as, from Tafiri's point of view, it seemed totally, totally lost. But now we know that there's a glimmer of hope at maybe returning it. And it's just different readings based on what we know about the story now and how they've written the story now. I think the last thing we want to note is artistic license should also be allowable. And Nick Kelman talks about this a little bit in the interview I did with him, where... The same essential events happen, but the circumstances might be, the details might be slightly different. So the one I like to use is the difference between the Raven's Eye and Liliana's Origin, the fourth pact, 
where, you know, the Raven Man influences her into poisoning Josu and both. But in the more recent story, Liliana creates the potion that uh, curses Josu herself versus being handed it by the Raven Man. And she also fights a bunch of skin witches, which she didn't do in the original story. So things like that, it didn't change the essence of her story. But all of Magic Origins kind of took a artistic license to the established backstories for these characters. And again, I think it's more appropriate to have made that change for Liliana's origin, because the fact that she is the one who made the potion that turned Josu into a zombie has been really important for her character arc since. So changes like that where, you know, they were taking a piece of media that not a whole lot of people had actually read that had been written years and years before and refreshing it in a way that they were consciously going to use to have significant thematic and narrative impact. That's generally how you want to use retcons like that. So I want to mention that I think of everything we've discussed, the only thing that is inherently not a good thing is a continuity error that's just a flat-out mistake. I don't think any of us are going to argue that those are good, because it's usually... Especially the big ones. Yeah, because it's usually from a lack of oversight. Yeah, and we've also seen people undo continuity errors. I won't give any examples here. (laughs) (laughs) So We've, We've seen people go through hoops to undo things that they have messed up, so unintentionally so sometimes if you make a continuity error you can make a retcon that fixes it (laughs) I, i will talk about one of those in just a second so the first one is a pretty big one and it's the aegis shield spell that gideon refers to his indestructible aura is referred to throughout all of this as a aegis shield spell which is weird It's definitely a change from how they've established his abilities up until this point. But I should also note, Gideon didn't even have an indestructible aura before Magic Origins. It was completely invented for Magic Origins. Yeah, if you love that part about his character, you love retcons, and you love every single retcon, so (laughs) too bad. Retcon love is a zero-sum game. So I legitimately, for a year for some reason, remembered that Gideon as always having that. And then I went back and reread The Purifying Fire and read the stories he's in for, the one story he's in for Zendikar, Battle for Fort Kef, and I read his Return to Ravnica stories, and it doesn't appear in any of them. <laughs> yeah, it's just purely driven from the, or purely pulled from the card ability. So this ability was never really given a name before, and it wasn't really something he cast i'm curious if this is what it's been called on an internal document the whole time that was just never in a story because this seems like a very specific name i also understand the idea of turning it into of describing it as a spell because if your game is about wizards and mages you want them to be casting spells in your stories so i looked this one up too And there is an interesting note. You want to know what the only reference to an Aegis is in the Theros block? Mm, Aegis of the Gods. I'm going to guess it. Yeah, I'm going to guess it rhymes with Heliod. Uh, Well, it's a a white uh, bestow creature, I believe. 
I recall it's not a bestow creature. It's a two mana two one that gives you hexproof, but it is an enchantment creature. Oh, fair enough. Okay. So the next one I wanted to talk about, this is a relatively small one, is uh, Sukata City. Sukata is a country uh, that was left behind after Zalfir was phased out. The name of the city that would have been there was Amiquat, which was the name of, I think it was the capital of Sukata. The Q's probably more of a K. Amikat, yeah, that's probably right. And I know I can't pronounce anything right, so. Anyway, this one might just not even be a continuity error or a retcon. It might just be that because it's the only city in Sukata that they just changed the name. It's called Sukata City now because everything else about the country was probably phased out. Wasn't that a David Bowie song? Oh, God. So the, That's a bad one. the next one we want to talk about is uh, Shana's Aura, which would have been fine, except Joyra mentions remembering that Sise had a similar aura, which did not appear in any of the one, two, five novels Sise appeared in. No one really ever cast spells at her, except at the very start where Stark casts a spell that teleports her to Wrath, but, you know, there was no shield that, there was no aura that popped up around her to help prevent magic from hitting her. I should note that there was a retcon as an adding history for Joyra and Sisse to know one another, but that doesn't seem so outlandish because Sisse lived after the Phyrexian invasion. It's what the first captain of the Weatherlight and the next captain of the Weatherlight? The last captain of the Weatherlight, yeah. The first and the last. Yeah. It's not outlandish to think that Joyra at some point would have encountered the Weatherlight and Sisse at the same point in history, sometime before all the events of the Weatherlight saga happened. So Sisse and Joyra is a retcon of the adding history kind, and I think I like it a lot. I think it was a good change. Shauna's aura being from Sisse and Sisse having that aura, I think, was a retcon of the changing history kind, and I did not like that change. It didn't feel like it added anything. Yeah, and she's in five novels where this doesn't appear, so and probably would have been helpful. Maybe it's a magical power she got from captaining the victory. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, in that same story, Joyra mentions that she has known Joda from before the Phyrexian invasion. Uh, Raf goes, oh, do you know Joda? And Joyra says, yes, from before the Phyrexian invasion. But the problem with that is they met during the Mending, and they did not know each other. So, that one seemed like just a, it's like a small thing, but it's just annoying. She knew of him, but that's not the way she, she phrased it. So she might have just been trying to impress Raph or something there as well. This could, we could file this under the character was just wrong or not telling the whole truth. Yeah, this is the difficulty of it. Is it an actual, did they know each other before the Phyrexian invasion or did they not? We only have Joyra's word to go on and we kind of have it in this awkward interaction with Raph where she's just trying to like shut him up basically. Yeah, there are a few instances of this in the story. So I can tell you from the writer perspective, a character being wrong, it should be very clear that the character is wrong, <laughs> yeah. and there should be narrative importance to the character being wrong. There should be some weight to it. Like, 
when we eventually find out the identity identity of the Raven Man, if he's not a planeswalker, we get to point our fingers at Liliana and say, you were wrong when you suggested that he was a planeswalker in, I think it was Unkindness of Ravens? Yeah. But she asserts that the Raven Man is a planeswalker, and that's a case where a character's probably going to be wrong. Because Li- Liliana's made a lot of stabs and guesses at who the Raven Man is, and they're probably all wrong. And that's a situation where this character is not correct, is successfully used. It's should not be an option just to scapegoat when a character says a continuity error, which yeah. is, the, the uh, that's where I draw the line. So the next one I want to talk about is Malimo, the Marrow Sorcerer of Lanawar. Malimo is a bit odd in this story because Malimo gives his weather seed essentially to Joyra to help rebuild the weatherlight. But there's one problem is that it's implied throughout the story that he's from Yavamaya because it's mentioned Slamefoot thinks the wood is from Yavamaya of the weatherlight. And Lanawar is never once mentioned in the story. So it's never, like, corrected or confirmed. And Yavamaya is the only forest mentioned throughout the story. So there's a lot of awkwardness there. For what it's worth, though, I think this is easily explained by the fact that at that point in time, Multani, the Maro Sorcerer of Yavamaya, who had given Urza the original weather seeds for the original weatherlight, was in this semi-conscious primal state and would have been in no condition to help Joira build the new weatherlight. I think it's easily explained that Molimo went to Yavamaya to get weather seeds for her because Multani was out of commission at the time. But that explanation never appears in the story, and it could have just been like one line. So, who knows? But the one problem with that is Multani in episode 9 mentions, uh, oh, you used Malimo's seed, which seems odd if he took it from Yavamaya because it wouldn't be his seed. Malimo is just referenced as his rival, another tree elemental. So from the sounds of it, the story seems to think Malimo is from Yavamaya. But anyway, let's keep going. So here's, here's a big one. The Silex. We talked about it a bit from uh, when it was first introduced in the story. The Silex is dug up from Yavamaya proper, except the problem is if this is the original Silex and it's being dug up because it's where Urza detonated it the first time around, it's too far to the northwest because Yavamaya is not in the same place that Argoth is. And the other problem is that the Golgothian Silex or the Argivian Silex was destroyed in the comic Wayfarer. Adding to this, Time Spiral had already had a continuity error dealing with Yavamaya and Argoth, where the rift associated with Urza detonating the Silex was over Yavamaya, which physically is way to the northwest of where it should be in Argoth. I don't know if this is a carryover continuity error, or if this is uh, just a fresh continuity error, or if this Silex is, Karn is just uh, ends up being right and Urza did create this Silex. We just don't know. It's one of those awkward things where there's a whole bunch of different potential problems with it. 
and potential solutions. This seems like it was compounding the error from time spiral. Agreed. Which makes sense because any internal documents they have about time spiral are way more recent and complete than any kind of documentation at all that they would have had about the Antiquities War. And I don't think anyone's going to be mad they retconned Wayfarer, which is the comic <laughs> from 25 I'm years ago. I am. super mad. I'm about to quit. No, it's, it's minor, and nobody was connected to that anyways, so... Ethan and Kelly in the Magic Story podcast said that, yeah, the fact that the rift is over Yavimaya in Time Spiral doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They mentioned that they could create a metaphysical reason why it moved, but that there's nothing in canon about it, so it is what it is. So there's another issue with Yavimaya's geography where... Chandra, having walked along New Argive and through the mountains, comes across a coast and sees Yavimaya, maybe, as, as the story says, maybe only a mile or two away across the shore, which shouldn't work, because if you look at any of the maps of uh, Teresier, that is a much greater distance than two miles, even from the closest point. Geographically, it would mean the entirety of Teresier was only like 100 miles across, which we know it's way, way bigger based on previous maps and scales provided there. If the Dominarian globe is two and a half times the size of Earth, it means Teresier has got to be like the size of at least half the United States. It's not a two-mile gulf between the two of them. Honestly, this is a minor issue. It's a it's definitely a continuity error. It's one of the few here that is definitely a continuity error. It's also the same story that screws with this set's timeline. Yes. My guess is procedurally these stories didn't get the editing attention that they probably should have. You're probably right. And I think so we know Yavamaya extended over in colonies through the water and over onto the New Argive section of the continent. But why, if it was the part on land, why would she need to take a boat across? There are just a lot of issues with it. And why would the Silex be there versus Yavamaya? We don't know. That's really it. You mean there versus Argoth? Yes, correct. And as Andrew mentioned, the timeline is a, is a pretty major issue because Chandra, all of Chandra's time between when she leaves the Gatewatch, and when we see Jace again is accounted for, and it's only like two weeks. And we know Jace was on Ixalan for five months, which we talked about back when the story came out. That's one I really don't like. But we'll we'll leave that alone because we've we've already talked about that a bit. So the next one I will let Andrew talk a little bit about in that Slimefoot's babies, it's not clear if they're supposed to be Saprolings or if they're supposed to actually be baby thalids, the Magic Story podcast, like the same week the Slimefoot story came out, the Magic Story podcast made clear that Saprolings are not baby thalids. Ethan made it clear on Twitter. Oh, I'm sorry. Saprolings are not baby thalids. They will not grow up to be thalids one day. But here's the thing with how Sarpedian thalids make Saprolings. They use spore counters in the original set, and then turn those spores into saprolings, which are still small fungal organisms, just like the thalids are big fungal organisms. 
spores are how most funguses reproduce, so it seems likely that the saprolings that dominarian thalids create are in fact genetic offspring of those thalids, or magical offspring. However, that however that process works, saprolings are, are born from the thalid. The thalid is the parent organism to them. So in that sense, uh, slimefoot saprolings would be its babies, but they wouldn't be baby thalids, which they get referred to as baby thalids also, but also Raph maybe just doesn't know. It's so many of these, the character just doesn't know, the character just doesn't understand the context, and it just like piles up, and I guess that's my biggest issue. And you know, the characters in this whole story kind of admit that they don't really know what they're dealing with when it comes to slimefoot. I don't know about that one, because Raph knows enough to know they're originally from Sarpedia and implies the food relationship between Thalids and the Saprolings, so I don't know, it, it just seems weird. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a mistake on someone's part. I think it's correct to say that Saprolings are a Thalids babies, because how Saprolings are created from Thalids is consistent with a parent and child organism relationship but it would be wrong to say that they're baby thalids. I think the answer to this one is that it probably could have just been more clear. Yes. Well, a lot of things could have been more clear, but when you cut your work time in half and have to scramble to get everything done, these are the kinds of issues that crop up. So the next one is about liches. Uh, This is one I had initially argued with a little bit with our friend uh, A.E. Marling from the Lorgoifs and from uh, Flavor Text Writer fame. And I mean, um, among other things, he's an author. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what I know him from. So liches is a term that seems to get thrown around a little freely on Urborg. There are these panther warriors that appear on the deck of the Weatherlight that are referred to as liches. And it's not clear whether they are part of the uh, zombie horde that Liliana raises, or if they are just other liches who also happen to be panther warriors that Liliana summoned, or called, was the actual term used. Or just showed up. I've read that section multiple times, and it's just not very clear what happens. So what I will note is Shana and someone else, I don't remember who, maybe Raph, are looking down at the panther warrior zombies that are being raised and then they're surprised that these other panther warriors appear they're like shocked that they appear on the ship from a different direction so my thinking is if they're looking down at the hundreds of warriors did they just miss this i think it was like a dozen or something that showed up on the ship to consult with liliana i don't know i don't think they showed up on the ship i don't know what you're talking about they showed up on board in the story I would have to go back. The yeah, the the liches like showed up on board the ship while it was in the air after Liliana had raised the battlefield below them. It's a very like it's a weird like the space in the scene. But then they're not even in the Yargle fight. That makes see that that whole section was just very unclear about what is actually happening. So it's it's hard to trust anything that is said in that part of the story that small section. And we should note also that the Spectre Ergoros is referred to as a lich in the final story. Mm. That was very much more clearly definitely uh, wrong. A problem. Yeah. So those are the real big ones. There's one minor gripe I have in that the Black Blade wasn't spelled the same. 
like even consistently inside the story. It is both the two words, Black Blade and Black Blade one word at different points in the story, which just seemed like a like a frustrating editing problem to me. But that was that ends up being a very minor one. So the the jury's still out on how many of these are actual continuity errors versus say a character being wrong or any of the other issues we talked about earlier. I will say though, with the black blade, black blade thing, even if your editing couldn't fix all the continuity issues, you still should have had copy editing or at least a guide to make it clear that black blade is spelled consistently throughout 12 stories. Yeah. That doesn't require any magic knowledge at all. That just requires a guide, or in the absence of a guide, a copy editor should see those things and spell differently and fix one of them. I think our conclusion from all of this is that there definitely needs to be somebody paying closer attention to continuity and making sure that if it isn't a continuity error, that it's more clear that this is the real thing. You know, there are enough of these that we talked about that are super ambiguous that, like, just some small changes could have fixed it. Yeah, I don't like going to the end of the block and have to assume that Karn, Joyra, all these people misremembered pretty major things or are just mistakenly spouting claims regarding the Silex, regarding Joda, regarding... Liches. Yavamaya's distance, yeah, regarding Liches. It's difficult for me to... I'm just a detail-oriented person. I'm not enjoying stories where it's not matching up to what I know or not clearly contradicting what I know. And I walk away from these stories asking, like, is that really trying to, like, contradict this thing from 15 years ago? I don't think so. But I didn't enjoy it as a result because I have to, like, constantly have that in the back of my mind of that scene was really weird. So I should note as well, I don't like being the continuity police, and if there are minor things that show up, I'll tend to just ignore them. But the fact that I could think of like 10 to 12 items off the top of my head when I put together like the outline for this discussion, that that indicates a problem. Yep. So I will note that you shouldn't hassle Martha Wells for any of this as the author. She works with what wizards gives her in the time that she has to write and i don't think she is really at fault for any of this if you want to send your criticism somewhere send it to wizards if you want to give your feedback to wizards a be constructive and be polite but either tweet at the wizards community team on you know on twitter or other social media account or talk to a customer service they have feedback systems there and specifically mentioned that you want to make sure that continuity is something that is more closely edited in stories um and you know we we talked about how this is kind of nick hellman's you know the the worst set honestly for nick to join wizards um in, in oh my his God, position yeah. at and, and i'm i'm sympathetic to everyone in this process losing literally half the work time to write Dominaria's story, but still have more than a set's worth of content. There are a lot of external things that happened that made this whole process a lot worse than I think it should have been, and I think would have been, ideally. But 
yes, it's it's okay to feel not great about some of these things or to feel good about some of these things, as we'll talk about the good stuff in a bit. But be constructive in your criticisms. Generally, it, it's more helpful to say what you didn't like and why you didn't like it than just say, hey, wizards, I didn't like this, because that's not terribly helpful. Correct. But let's talk about the good things. <laughs> I think that's a really good note. So the best parts of Dominaria, there was a lot to like here. My personal favorite was uh, Mother Ludi being revealed as Jaya Ballard, something I had in like the back of my mind since she first appeared, and that I wrote a big article about in November. And it is such a great... I've been using the term long con. I'm not sure a long con is the right way to use it, but it's like a... That was a slow burn, and it shows that there is a willingness to connect dots like that in the story. Yeah, we keep talking about this moment, too. And, like, I'm not even sure Mother Luti was always intended to be Jaya. Yep. Like, we, we, we just don't know if her appearance in, in the Purifying Fire all those years ago was supposed to eventually lead to this kind of reveal. It makes sense in retrospect, so whether, whether it was planned then or not, doesn't matter because it still works. Kudos if it was planned to staying true to that plan all these years later. Kudos if it wasn't the plan to making that work all these mm -hmm. years later. Absolutely. I think regardless of what the behind the scenes background to the Malaluti Jaya Ballard connection is, I think it turned out fantastic. And being able to construct a fan favorite character like Jaya back into a relevant position in the current magic story in such a way that she's already impacted a lot through e even just since origins very very clever and if you're not a super invested Vorthos but you maybe played all the way back during Ice Age this may have been a huge surprise for you which is also an awesome moment I, I, I think it's cool if you were surprised or if you saw it coming and still got to see it paid off. Like, there's, there's like nothing bad I can say about this connection. So I also liked Jaya's personality once she was revealed, where she <laughs> she's basically like, yeah, I got drunk, accidentally started a religion. You know how I do. It's so Jaya. Like, they were consistent with Jaya's past and, and her kind of reckless body sarcastic past character but they also didn't stop her there we didn't get regurgitated the jaya of the past her character got developed in in her now old age to be this kind of mentor who's kind of you know a little i almost want to say yoda ish in that she's not so like stuffy about things she's like really loose and sarcastic still, but in a much more helpful way. She found she likes teaching, but also she's still not going to put up with your bullshit. Exactly. And we don't swear on this show. <laughs> so, uh, so one of the other ones I liked was Liliana's character development. It was a very uphill battle to get to the point where I would actually care that Liliana fell into Bolus's clutches at the end of the story. And so kudos for making me 
actually care what happens to Liliana. And as much as Jay liked seeing the Jaya Ballard reveal, I loved seeing her come back and have the thing sticking in her craw being Josu, who I've been talking about for years as mm-hmm. a thing, an undercurrent in Liliana's story since Origins, clearly. And no one talked about it. Like, there were no, almost no Vorthoses spending any time considering what Liliana was going to feel about her brother and the encounter that would inevitably happen when she returns home someday. So I'm glad to see that that came around and, and paid off and really displayed and brought to the front of her character Liliana's compassionate side, which we never get to see her act that way about anyone except Josu, but her interaction with Josu lets her, I think, open up a bit to Gideon, which was really important for Liliana. So, Carrie, did you have something you wanted to mention as well? I liked Quende as a white-aligned villain. Like, yes, that's the simplest way to put oh, it. Yeah. It was refreshing to see him in the card set previewed and then get to see him in the story as the most staunch anti-Tafiri person. It made so much sense. Yeah, it was perfect. Um, And after we figured out, or after we learned of the sun clasp and the other things that related to his character, but I'm also just a sucker for flashback stories, TBH. Like, everything <laughs> relating to Ugin and Bolas on Tarkir, that being revisited with the flashback scene in Rivals of Ixalan. There's just a lot of kind of filling that space character development that you miss out on otherwise knowing that Tafiri has people that were trying to kill him in that meantime and not just not just hearing it as a blurb of like oh people really hated me no knowing that his name was cursed and he kind of reluctantly went by it saying that it was a family name yeah that's one of the things that's a great segue into talking about Tafiri's character development in Return to Dominaria which, in my opinion, was excellent. I think the two stories with Teferi, the one set in the present where he and Niambi find that crystal thing in Urza's labyrinth, and then the next story, which was his flashback with Quende, I think that was probably the highlight of this entire set's story. I am a person who did not care for Teferi before this. He was very arrogant and very dismissive and this story showed not just that he changed into a more compassionate person but how he changed we finally got to see an arrogant premending planeswalker become mortal and have to deal with the consequences of their unilateral decisions and i think that's huge for teferi specifically and magic story in general And it was delightful. I think we should note and see them grow from it because we've seen that before, but they're always villains because they always double down on it. Right. And that was something I had mentioned back when, you know, in the episodes when we talked about those stories is that most of the pre-mending walkers we meet are kind of searching for that power again. We have a lot like Bolas and Liliana and Obnixilis trying to regain what they lost. Teferi is someone who really accepted what happened and used that to fuel a new stage in his life. 
and a new new attitude. And I should note, to a lesser extent, Jaya Ballard experienced this as well. We yeah. just don't see it as clearly as we do with Teferi's character. We didn't get two full stories on it. Not to go back to the kind of negative things about this set, is that in, a, in the 12 stories, like we got two whole stories for Teferi, two whole stories about Chandra's experiences. This set in general, I think, was really unbalanced in that regard. Because yeah. then, like, the defeat of Belzenlock takes half a story when it should be the climax of this whole set. So, and that that is something that I think has very clearly a result of losing the second set and having to cut the story back down to 12 episodes. So I'm sympathetic to the whole everyone involved in how that ended up being a little weighted weirdly. I am very glad that they still let Teferi get those two whole episodes. I think it's it was critically important since he's going to be a member of the Gatewatch going forward, as opposed Absolutely, to Karn and yeah. Jaya who are there to help. But it had to sell both people who didn't like Teferi from before, like you, people who never knew anything about Teferi before, and people yep. who've read all of Teferi's stories before on Teferi in this arc, and it did that. Yep. So the next thing I want to mention is Gideon. I kind of like the slightly quippier Gideon, whereas before he, I don't want to call him stick in the mud Gideon, but he wasn't that funny. He wasn't that, he didn't seem to be, you know, he didn't seem to realize he was the hero in a story. I, I, I don't know the best way to put this. I thought it was face in the mud Gideon in Battle for Zendikar. <laughs> Gideon of the Purifying Fire had some really great lines where he, you know, he has, I, I don't even know the best way to put it. He had that line that I talked about a couple weeks ago where uh, the guy was like, you know, why didn't you protect me? And he's like, you've got guards. Or Chandra's like, I, I had a bad childhood, okay? And he's like, you're still having a bad childhood. Uh, so I, I like that that Gideon is coming back a little bit. And part of that is him breaking out of his funk when he realized that Bolas was right and he did want to die. And his determined faith to go on living and prove Bolas wrong has changed him. It's been kind of a subtle change, but Gideon, you know, he had that what that line I personally loved where Slimefoot walked by. Gideon had no idea what the heck this thing was and was just like, you know what? That's someone else's problem. And a lot of people were like, well, that's not Gideon. Well, the problem is that other Gideon had problems <laughs> that uh, he, he couldn't. The whole point of the story limits is that he couldn't. He had no filter as to how to prioritize issues. He was involved in everything. And also in Limits, he's going back and forth between fighting the Eldrazi who are destroying Zendikar and fighting against a ring of goblin mobsters who are terrorizing Ravnica. Alleged goblin mobsters. <laughs> Not convicted. Krenko yet. is a legitimate Ugh. businessman. And point is, those, <laughs> those situations are a lot more dire and important than just a fungus walking by. It's not like Gideon was looking at, uh, you know, the cabal storming through a village and going, not my problem. It was a soft little comedic moment in an overall comedic story. So we got a user question from uh, George Lay, I believe that's how you pronounce it, talk asking about a white-black Gideon and Blackblade. Did you want to talk about that, Andrew? 
Well, yeah, so part of Gideon's resolution to destroy Bolas is like he's found purpose more than just a general, I want to die protecting my friends. He is a man on a mission, and that's kill Nicol Bolas. And that's kind of pushing to a more ambitious Gideon than we've ever seen before. It's made Gideon in this story a lot more willing to do things that he wouldn't have done in the past. Remember, at the beginning, in the first episode, he is the only one who sticks by Liliana. Jace is nowhere to be seen, Nyssa leaves the whole Gatewatch entirely, and Chandra flares off to Ragatha to try and find Jaya. And Gideon says, you know what, Liliana? You make some sense. We need to kill Nicobolas. Your power will help do that. So let's fix your problem, and then we can fix our big problem, Bolas. And then he gets a little hesitant when Liliana's like, oh, we can just use this uh, soul-drinking demon sword to, <laughs> to kill Bells and Locke. And Gideon's like, hold up, I'm not touching that thing. But as we learn by the end of the story, Gideon is like, ah, I guess I gotta do this thing if I'm gonna kill Bells and Locke. And then now he's thinking, oh, I'm gonna take it and kill Nicobolas with it. So we've seen, we've seen his kind of moral core erode, not, not even eroded a little, it just like, he's just made a couple little compromises along the way, and now he's wielding the most evil weapon in the entire multiverse. When he started the block as the Goody Two-Shoes, who's going to defeat the ultimate evil, a lot of people have been questioning, well, will we see a white-black Gideon Planeswalker card in the future? And I can't actually say anything about that. You know, that yeah, that's fair. Uh, <laughs> it, it does kind of bring to mind Isan's Shade, which Isan mm -hmm. was a white-aligned hero who wanted to stop the big bad and wanted to turn to dark powers for it and was cursed because of it. So I wonder if something like that might happen to, to Gideon. I don't think a white-black Gideon is out of the question. I'm not necessarily sure... I don't know. I'm I'm going to have to see where Ravnica takes him at, to to really say for sure whether they're going to continue the more ambitious streak that Gideon has shown or if uh he is a, you know, the archetypal white villain willing to sacrifice himself to take out the big bad. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's an excellent kind of leveling up on Gideon's character development. From Origins to the end of Hour of Devastation is when we had the Gideon figuring out that his traumas very much informing all his decision makings in terms of his hero work. Now we're kind of on the next phase where even in the classic hero's journey, you know, the, the point where the hero kind of starts to waver a bit and is tempted by darkness. This is classic mythological hero tropes, Gideon's from Greek mythology plane. So it's fitting for him to be in this very kind of almost archetypical position, but it's still, I don't think he's reduced to that archetype. It's still very, the archetype is playing out very specifically with Gideon's circumstances, which is, which is good. It's a good way to use those kinds of tropes to help anchor a story. And I'm very, very excited to see where this goes for Gideon. A character, again, who was someone who I thought was boring before the Origins reboot, and especially in the last year, I've become fascinated with. 
So let's uh, talk about the real star of the show, Slimefoot. I mean, obviously, Slimefoot was the true hero of Dominaria. Are we in agreement? Yes. The The character was great. Slimefoot, it is hilarious. It's awesome. It is the heart of the Weatherlight. It is a adequate replacement for the previous jokey heart of the Weatherlight, which was Squee. And I really hope to see Squee and Slimefoot meet one day. That'd be interesting. I'm not too attached to Squee. <laughs> I haven't read any of them. Squee. So. And I want to give Martha Wells a lot of credit because writing different styles and different tones is very difficult. Teferi's episodes were very contemplative and very kind of slow and weighty. Then Martha's Slimefoot story was so funny and like just so deadpanly good, which is just, it's very hard to write that way in general. And that she succeeded so well between the Teferi and the Slimefoot story in terms of tone, all the credit to Martha because it was just so enjoyable to read the Slimefoot story because I wasn't expecting it to be as comedic as it was given the previous stories in this set. So the last thing we want to talk about here is the Dominaria art book, which doesn't come out for another month now. Yeah. I mean, we got to wait for... They usually came out a week or two before we started getting previews for the second set in the block. So just in time to ruin the story spotlights is the other way to put it. (laughs) There's a lot to look forward to in this one, not only because it might help us clarify some of the stuff we've discussed in this episode with regards to continuity and canon, but also we didn't get much expansion on a lot of the elements that kind of were founding for this story. Bells and Locks summoning, we only knew about that from an Access Magic and a Magic Story podcast. Those were the only two explanations of where this dude came from, aside from Right of of Bells and Lock. Finding out more about whatever demon realm he was trapped in is going to be interesting. Yeah. And you also go for it. Bells and Lock is just, I don't want to say maybe, yeah, a weak villain, just because we know nothing about him. He's, he is essentially a big bad that justifies the character arcs we saw, which are arguably more important long term, but it did feel like he got a disservice in the story a little bit there. That's what happens when your two set block with stories for each gets condensed down. Like, like that is the root of most of the problems in this set, and that's a shame. I'm going to be looking forward to Ravnica and Core 2019 story, Magic 2019 story, for how they handle continuity in the future. What we've seen has been promising from the card side, but we also had very, very strong, cohesive continuity in the card set of this set, and kind of fell through in the main Magic story. Not to be a downer again, but figuring out... A lot of those nuances from the art book helps, and the art book is sure to have like a two-page spread of uncarded art to Fury just biting down. So it's gonna chop. You know? yeah. crunch, crunch, crunch. All right, final thoughts, Andrew. 
Uh, there was a world-building piece about Kylum, the plane from Battlebond, that came out last Wednesday that we're not really going to talk about because we've got so much other things to talk about, but if you are interested in Kylum, go read that. Talk to us on Twitter about it. Yeah. That's the simple way <laughs> of doing it. Final thoughts, Carrie. My final thoughts are be as disgruntled as you want with the story, but don't take it out on human beings. We um, recently had a big kind of news thing in the Star Wars fandom where people were harassing users pretty much entirely off of Instagram platform. And that's just not a fun space to be in in any fandom. You can have your dissatisfaction with the story and... You can be upset that Wizards isn't doing things the way that you want to or the way that has been done in the recent past, but don't take that on on human beings. That's the simple way. There are plenty of people who will talk to you and discuss the things with you and we'll try our best to headcanon away the stuff. Yeah, and that's not to say that people who had a problem with Dominar's story are harassing people at wizards that's not what we're saying we understand that that's not harassment but um it, it is important to remember that wizards of the coast is the name on a bank account wizards of the coast is not an entity that creates anything magic story is written by people the game is designed by people who work for wizards of the coast but understanding that all your praises and criticisms and feedback is to people about work that people passionately worked on i think goes a long way to finding an empathetic tone to explain your displeasure with the state of whatever thing you are displeased with i think it's important when you're upset about things like this because i get upset about them too take a step back and think because this is the story of a card game that we're getting for free they don't have to deliver this. In fact, there was a there was a period of time a few years ago where it was very likely we weren't going to be getting any story outside of the cards. And think about exactly how much malice and antipathy you really want to invest in the story to a card game, you know, and remember that it's people creating it. And is it worth being nasty to people over continuity for something like this i don't personally think it so it's that's not the, yeah that's the secret it isn't <laughs> <laughs> it's never gonna be worth it but right when we thought we weren't gonna get story our lord and savior jenna helland delivered us online story so praise be jenna <laughs> thank you all for listening this was the vorthos cast